G'day, Clayton here from XY Advisor. Uh, Stuart McGrath was my guest for this podcast. Uh, interesting conversation in that I'd never had this one before, <laughs> which is always, you know, an interesting uh, premise to start from, which is I have no idea what you're talking about. Please start from the beginning. And uh, and we do. So turns out that uh, indices are a lot more complicated than I initially thought. And there are some um, interesting business potentials for those that are interested in sort of playing uh, up there with the big boys. So if, uh, if you're interested to find out how indices work a little bit better than you currently understand them, and if you're interested to really sort of step it up and get a bit experimental in uh, your own revenue model, then hopefully you enjoy. This episode is proudly sponsored by NetWealth. Launching nearly 20 years ago, this ASX-listed company is ranked number one for overall platform functionality and user satisfaction by investment trends for the past three years. As the financial advice landscape changes, it's important now more than ever to embrace new technology and enhance the way you do business. With this change comes your chance to innovate, explore new perspectives, and realize new efficiencies. NetWealth is here to support you on this journey by providing you market-leading technology, excellent customer support, and expertise to help you innovate in your business. Visit the NetWealth website to learn more and get the PDS which clients should read before making a decision. Products issued by NetWealth Investments Limited. Stuart, thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Yeah. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, it's Andrew, right? Andrew. Uh, violent. Violent, yes. Violent. Violent. <laughs> yeah, it's not spelt violent, but that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> no. Yeah. The W's a V, like oh. it's a German thing, I don't know. Andrew Violent. <laughs> Just thank you for being born. That is just a phenomenal name. So Andrew, who's a part of our XY Advisor uh, community, that, you know that that's uh, currently on the uh, the Facebook group. Um, he he reached out to us and he said uh, we should get you on. So uh, thanks for coming in, mate. My pleasure. Yeah, and uh, and in in the short amount of time that I've, we've got to chat, um, I found out that that you. Uh, do international uh, advisor tours. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so what happened on this tour that was so phenomenal that Andrew Violent <laughs> reached out and said, quick, go talk to Stuart? I don't think there's any one thing. This is the third year that I've done it. Awesome. Um, and they're always a little bit different each year. This year was the first year we'd done it in June. Previous years had been September, right. which just means it's a different experience in North America because we try to give people our... Uh, and a sporting experience when we're there as well. So maybe I'll talk about last year because last year was really cool what we yeah, did. Yeah, do it. So, so one of my colleagues in the US, he he's ex-US uh, Army, so he's a graduate of uh, West Point Military Academy. Oh, man. So, um, you know, Sean's done a couple of um, tours of duty in the Middle East uh, during the first Gulf War and stuff like that. But he thought a really cool experience would be um, if we could take the advisors up to West Point Military Academy to a college football game. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ooh, ooh. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. So it was a Sunday morning. We all jumped on a, like a fast cat. Our office is right downtown in Manhattan, just kind of between the Brooklyn Bridge and the oh, uh, where man. the ferry goes to awesome. um, Staten Island. Yeah. So we all jumped on a fast cat down there, did one pick up somewhere else, and then we just kind of hooned it up the Hudson River for a couple of hours up to West Point. And it was just magical because the leaves were just starting to change colour and oh. stuff like that, but kind of went the whole length of Manhattan on the on the Hudson River, so on the, the west side. Yeah. And then as you're kind of coming up to West Point, I don't know if you've ever been there. Yes. Oh, well, I haven't been to West Point, but I've been to New York. Yeah. So West Point's just like this fort kind of thing, and yeah, it was literally right. – 
um, that's where the British were stopped. Because um, oh. it was a bend in the river, the point. Yes. And so there's just this kind of grey um, granite kind of fort-looking thing as you pull up, and it's quite on a steep hill. Yeah. Anyway, we got up there and walked up. Um, I think we busted up actually to the field. And then the, the kickoff of the game is just phenomenal. So there's these five guys jumping out of helicopters over the... Like, what over the, the hell? <laughs> over, the, um, <laughs> over the field. And then the last guy comes down with the American flag and, you know, no. he can't touch the ground. So these guys are running after him to make sure it doesn't touch the ground. So that kind of kicked off the, the day. So, um, but this year we took them to a baseball game at Yankee Stadium. So, so that's kind of the fun part of the tour. But the, the um, other bit, which is, which is fun, but it's kind of more business-orientated... Um, we, we this year and previous years we've started in Chicago and we've gone to this Morningstar Investment Conference or a Morningstar ETF conference and mm. so the, the advisors who come on the tour they kind of get a bit of a feeling of what the US market's like what the trends are there so it's really an opportunity for if you like for them to look into a crystal ball and see what the future may look like for Australia yeah so we do that but on the last day we're in Chicago we we go to, to the Chicago Board Options Exchange so it's where the S and P futures and options contracts are still traded in an open outcry environment amazing so we take them in in there we get a tour with one of the guys who um again Sean who I just referenced the um has a friend there or, or a colleague there and we go in there and these guys can see where these futures and options contracts on the S and P 500 are being traded and for an advisor that just kind of blows their mind they love it um so you can't it's really hard to get them out of the exchange once yeah i didn't realize that was still happening yeah so this floor in the SIBO is it's pretty empty like there's all these pits yeah they're all empty and yes. then there's one with all these people in it and, and that's kind of it and so, it's not theater it's real it's real like they're trading yeah so it's, it's full on man so, i would love to check that out and then we go to the new york stock exchange we're in new york as well so we take them onto the floor at the opening bell so we're there at 9 30 in the morning and um last year it was was interesting because they did this 10-second countdown from, you know, to 9.30 and then it all starts. But it's actually quiet once it starts because all the computers just take over. <laughs> and all that so they're expecting trading. the rah, 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 rah. And, and all you hear is... Yeah, it was just, it's <laughs> dead quiet. Like it's just this little buzz in the background. Yeah. But this year there were two IPOs happening. So there was a bit more activity on the floor that morning. Wow. So which was good. And they all kind of jostled to try and get behind the table with the gavel and under the balcony <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's great to be able to deliver those those kind of experiences to them. Man, that's super cool. Um, so Sibo, the, the only thing that I uh, have any reference for is the VIX. Now, I used to... So it's their intellectual property, but we calculate it and we distribute that index. So we have an Australian version of the VIX as well. There's an AVIX. Is there? Yeah. So, um, I used I got really video, into it. Would you believe it? Really? Like, that was a couple of years ago. I can send you the link. And <laughs> no, please. And we'll put it in the show notes. I... Now, you can, you can definitely disagree with me here, but I, I used to... I, I, I'm not a trader anymore, but when, when I'm... When I used to be a tax accountant, I used to fill in my time with fun by being a day trader. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was quite hilarious. <laughs> I'd be sort of, you know, talking to someone about their tax while while day trading on the computer. And you used to track the VIX? Yes. Okay. And I used to love it. And that was one of my, even though technically it is just a reflection of the sentiment. The, the fear index. Though, yeah, yeah, the right. fear index. I found it was just such a, um, you know, and and. And back in the sort of the 08 and the 09 times, uh, it was so volatile yeah. that uh, but I, I just didn't know how to trade it it's at that time. It's been volatile the last couple of weeks. And then also back Has in it? February, March, there was a, a bit yeah, of a spike Yeah, I did see that. Well, what's so. going on? What's going on? Oh, who knows what's going on, you know? What's Trump doing? <laughs> ah, it's a good question. I think it's all, uh, all connected to that. So, um, 
you know, I just think there's so much uncertainty in the market at the moment. No one knows which way things are going to go and the, the tariffs and the, yeah. the trade barriers and trade wars. And I yeah. think there's just a lot of uncertainty. So people are a bit, yeah. a bit rattled, I think. It's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I've actually, if I'm, if I'm honest to myself, and maybe I'm, I'm a little bit too cautious, but I've been uncertain since the GFC. Right. Even though we've seen great growth, I, I, I've been waiting for it to happen again oh, really? okay. for so long. Just because interest rates has been so unusual in Beca- the environment? Well, it, because if you if you go back to the sort of the 70s and the 80s and 90s and they all had a, a big dip, right? But this one took twice. It, it sort of takes twice as long for the recovery to happen every time. And then... And this recovery has been the longest on this, record. Yeah, yeah correct. And and uh, none of the things that got us here, it, or, you know, to the GFC, have been fixed. Now there's a couple of little things here and there. But there's more but, debt. But, now that you- uh, yeah, fundamentally, it's it just <laughs> the the whole world universally just went. We have no way out. We have no way out that we just have to keep going and keep delaying it to the next generation. Kick it down, the, kick the can down the road. Yeah, man. What's going to happen? I don't know. I feel sorry for my kids. Oh, yes. <laughs> correct. So. And, and, and trying to explain to people that uh, there isn't a solution. Like even if we were to say, let's move to crypto. Okay, sure. But um, – as, as, a, as a global currency. As a global currency, right. Or, or, or even, you know, you could have each individual country just moves to crypto, right? Let's say in a crazy utopian yeah. or dystopian, <laughs> just depends <laughs> how you think of it, future where something, you know, money turns completely digital. But the debt, the debt doesn't disappear. You, you, the, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no mathematical, there's no technological, there's no solution where debt. Unless it's forgiven. Unless it's forgiven, which also, uh, I mean, ultimately another name for a forgiven debt is bad debt, and then it, you're not going to receive it anymore. And so the yeah. asset on the corresponding balance sheet is gone as well. And then you, you, we still get a massive yeah, yeah, bankruptcy yeah. worldwide. And so, I don't know. How, what do you do? It, yeah. What do Beyond you do? Me. It is, it's complete, man. Uh, I've, you know, and then and the, 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 the truth is, like, if you think about if we're if debt is just simply spending money from the future, um, we've spent now cumulatively hundreds of years in the future, mm. and that's why we've seen this crazy ex- expansion of, of everything past, from yeah, the bubbles. '70s, um, and and there is no way down, and it is it is this crazy thing, but. That's not what what we're actually talking about today. <laughs> it's not. It's fascinating. <laughs> it is fascinating. So you're you're from S and P. So I'm from S and P Dow Jones Indices. Okay, which S- is a, a business unit within S and P Global. Right, right. Do you do you have uh, so so you're you're in the Australian team, obviously, mm-hmm. which is. I'd imagine infinitely smaller than the global there's team. Eight of us. Eight of us yeah. compared to sort of probably eight million or something. No, I think there's like five hundred globally or something like that. Five hundred and there's probably 70, 70 percent of those people, maybe seventy five percent in our, our New, York, New York office. Yeah, right. So, but the Sydney office looks after Australia and New Zealand predominantly. Do you get to go to New New, New York very often? Oh, oh. to New York. Yeah. Um, uh, at least once a year when I take the study tour. Yeah, nice. Um, but but sometimes twice. I've been there twice this year. <laughs> awesome. Um, and and so when you look at uh, indice investing, passive indice investing, 
I've had I've had it put to me <clears throat> once. So we'll start with something a little bit uh, a little bit counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. So it's been put to me recently that there's no such thing as passive investing. It's been put to me recently that uh, an indice, let's say the ASX 200, isn't passive. S&P ASX 200. The S&P ASX <laughs> 200, thank you very much. Um, and it's been put to me that it's not passive. It's actually following the investment uh, algorithm called top 200. And so when something comes up into the top 200, it gets in. And if something falls out of the 200, it's traded out. And that is actually taking a position that the best things to invest in are the top 200. So had, from a philosophical point of view, do you think the top 200 is – and then selling selling the, the ones that fall out of the, the top 200 and then buying the ones that are coming into the top 200, do you believe that's passive? So – what we do is we have a methodology for how we construct our indices. So the yes. S&P ASX 200 methodology is available on our website. We make that yep. all publicly available, so completely transparent. Yes. So you can go to our website, download the methodology, and actually understand how the that how index, it works. The ASX 200 works and how yeah, it's put right. together. And there's various kind of filters and screens that we put on it to figure out what are the 200 stocks yes. that are going to be in that index. And then when that, that happens on a quarterly basis, so every quarter- so you put screens in. There are some screens in there, so- So it's not just- Anything that's in the top 200. No, so there may be some screens, and I can't tell you one off the top of my head, but there sure. may be something that we go, because of that, it doesn't get into the ASX 200. Wow. So it's not just the biggest market cap, if you like. Right. Um, it tends to be the bigger ones, but it's the yeah. it's, there are screens that we, we Is that like an ethical overlay? There's not an ethical overlay because it's a market cap index, but yes. then we can do an ethical overlay if you wanted. So you could do yes. the S&P ASX 200, but you could exclude you know, for example, munitions, tobacco, alcohol, if you wanted to, but that right. wouldn't be a market cap index then. Yeah, so, that, that would be an ethical... And, screen, overlay. Yeah. Like um, but still investable. Okay. And and um, when it comes to active versus passive, right, <laughs> let, let's get to the... <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's get to the crux of it. Um, now, do, do you... Do you subscribe to the the Vanguard promoted idea that seventy uh, percent of passive outperform active? So, so we do a um, a report twice a year around the world, and mm-hmm. we do it in Australia. It's called SPIVA, which stands for S and P Index Versus Active. So it's called the SPIVA report. Right. And how would someone find that, by the way? On our website. Okay. Yeah. So you yep, can yep, just yep. go and, and download it. So cool. a lot of advisors um, use it when they're talking to their clients, when they're talking about passive investments, and saying, "Well, look at yeah, look at the data." Right. So what we do for Australia, we get the data from Morningstar yep. of all the f- active funds out there, and then we compare them against a relevant benchmark, a relevant benchmark which is ours. So for the large cap Aussie funds, mm. we would compare them their performance to the S&P ASX 200, for example. And for the 12 months ending 30 June this year, about 56% of those actively managed funds were outperformed by the index. So 56% of them didn't do as well as the index. Right. So you're paying active fees yes. for underperformance effectively. Right. But that so that's actually... Uh, that's actually more fair than I was anticipating. So I, I was under the assumption that seventy uh, percent or thirty only thirty percent outperformed. But you're suggesting that was in the last twelve months. In but the last you look twelve over months, one, three, right. five, 
10, 15 years, which we do the study yes. out to, yes. you can see then after 15 years, I think the number in the most recent report, and I don't have it in front of me, was something like 80% of actively managed large cap funds were outperformed by the relevant index over 15 years. Yeah, it's and and I'm, I'm definitely a massive fan of it, but I, but I know that there's also been, um, especially traditionally, but it's, it's becoming less and less at the moment of a thing for advisors to attach their value to, to uh, fund management selection. And that that's certainly drying up. What we're seeing is the um, advisors are more going, let's talk about your asset allocation. Yeah. And we'll go, you know, we're going to put X amount in Aussie equities, X yes. amount in global fixed income. Yes. And then the way they're going to execute that is through the use of ETFs. Yes. So. And that's certainly turning into a, a, a bigger thing. What, On the Spiva thing, like, there's another, which I think is actually a more interesting report. Yep. We do something called persistence as well. We look at persistence of active um, managers. What does that mean? So what we do is we take the top quartile in a particular year and we do it yes. over one, I think it's one, three and five years, but one and look at three and five years actually. And you say you take the top 25% of funds. Yes. Um, best performance in that category. Yes. They may or may not have outperformed the index, but they're the top 25% performers. Yes. And then we look after one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, how many of those remain in the top quartile? That's if a you good look question. over five years, yeah. of so I think in the large cap Aussie equity funds, there was say five years ago or three years ago, it was the same number. There were 75 funds. At right. the end of three, at the end of five years, only 1.3% of those 75 funds remain in the top quartile. So all of these funds fall out. And what that's basically saying, Spiva says it's really hard to pick an active manager who's going to outperform in any one year. It's almost impossible to pick one that's going to consistently outperform. Whoa. Now... So, so who can... How can you make that... Any- well, okay. So now, now, does that mean consistently outperform... Or consistently remain in the top quartile? Right. But let's say theoretically, I'd like to know, and then this is probably a different, and it is a different question. Does that still answer the same question of who's performed the best over five years? So, you know, theoretically, someone could kill it for, you know, four quarters of every year for four years, but then Die. Do it. So you look at it. So they could. They could. So there's a in in that report, and this where it gets way complex. Yes. There's a matrix which shows you how they drop through the different quartiles. Now we don't name and shame. Yeah, right. Um, so oh, just, you don't name and shame. Don't name and shame. How come? That sounds like great, res- because, great, great, great <laughs> bloody research. Well, because active fund manager our clients as well. So they're buying mm. our data and, and we don't want to name and shame. All we want to do is present the facts and go, this is the data. This is what the data says. Um, and, and we don't license the data from Morningstar. They don't, we don't pay the license so that we can name and shame because we're not interested in naming and shaming. We just want to go, this is what's happening. Yeah. Just realize how difficult it is and to pick an active manager who's going to outperform. And, and we think active managers' jobs is really, really hard. And you never hear a, a fund manager get up at a conference and say, my job's getting easier. They yeah. never say that. Yeah. So we appreciate that their job is really, really difficult. Yes, um, yes. No, um, that, that was uh, very well handled. <laughs> um, well, the, the truth. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> um, so what, what, if, what if an advisor wanted to, to you know, and, and I guess naming and shame is one name for it, but what happens if an advisor actually just wanted to get the detail, like that level of detail on uh, a broad range of active managers? Are you suggesting that that information is available on Morningstar, it'd just have to be, you know, coordinated in a so certain Morningstar way. So Morningstar would have the, the performance 
information, they yes. wouldn't necessarily have done the comparison to a relevant benchmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's the IP that we bring to that process. Yeah, that's again, it's definitely interesting. Is there like a paywall where you can find out the the names? No, no. <laughs> ah, shucks. <laughs> it sounds like great research. So, so what's the name of that report? Spiva. Spiva. So it's just an acronym for S and P Index versus Active. Yep. Um, twice a year we do it. So as at 31 December, 30 June. Yes. Um, and then persistence. So it's persistence. the persistence of active funds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and and the message out of all that is, you know, it's um, active managers underperform most of the time. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's definitely a message that uh, I think it's hard to argue with and it's, it's everywhere. And then obviously you, you do get examples of, of funds that, I mean, for example, if you think of the – uh, Fidelity Australian Equities Fund in particular, they, they do quite well, strangely, all the time. And they say, look, we've got the IP over 100 years that we know how to pick it. And you, you, you sort of see it consistently um, but when they do say well. Quite, I don't know that fund in particular, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I'm not commenting on that fund. But have they outperformed the relevant index? Yeah, so, look. So they may have just performed well. So then they've got four, five, six, I don't know what the number is. Yeah. But the index might have done 12%. So you might have been better to buy an ETF, which yeah. just tracked the index. It's a very good point. From from back, from from the last time I looked at it, and I, which means it probably two years ago at this stage, um, it was outperforming the index pretty pretty regularly sometimes and over just, a long time. As you know, too, though, sometimes just, the, the benchmark will be CPI plus, which yes. again may be less than the relevant. Yeah. Index, so. Yeah. There's a lot of cheeky little tricks out there, isn't there? CPI plus. One of the plus. really interesting ones at the moment that I've been um, – so part of my job is while well, I work with financial advisors, but I also work with asset owners in the Australian context. That's superannuation funds typically. And um, a lot of these super funds, and particularly industry funds, they'll have a small cap mm. um, option on their on That's their right, menu. yes. And often the um, – the uh, the index is the S and P ASX um, small ordinaries. Yeah, and a lot of these asset owners, super funds, are saying we think there's a free kick in that for fund managers because a lot of these um, small cap firms actually generate good profits, absolutely, or good returns. Yes, and so what we've been asked to do, and we've, this has been a global project, we've actually overlaid a profitability screen over the small odds. So we've used earnings per share as the profitability screen. Mm. And if you've got two years of positive earnings per share, you're in the index. If you've got two years, less than two years, you're out. And so that's actually made the benchmark or the, the hurdle much more difficult for active managers in that small cap space. Now, no one's adopted that index yet. Yeah. Um, where we're in discussion with a couple of players, but it's, it's kind of, you know, what is the appropriate index and, and that's what we say to our you know to financial advisors I'm speaking to and also if we get an opportunity to speak to their clients always try and understand what the index they're being benchmarked against is what is that index is that an appropriate benchmark mm. for that? and also if you're buying an ETF understand what the the index is inside the ETF um, and again you know ours are all available on our website come and download it and, and read the methodology and understand how the ASX 200 is put together how many how many because it's it's definitely fashionable to pump out as many different ETFs as possible how many are currently in your stable so we don't issue, we don't we're not a product issuer so we oh, don't have ETFs right. so we're the index we license that index to fund managers who now, then launch ETFs now please explain what that means <laughs> <laughs> okay so we're an index provider Yes. So we calculate indices. That's our, our bread and butter. So yes. As saying before, we, we calculate around a million every day globally. Wow, yeah. Um, 
And so in Australia, anywhere, if, if a fund manager comes to us and – let's use the ASX 200 as an example. Mm. If they come to us and say, we want to launch an ETF on the S&P ASX 200, um, how do we go about doing that? So we will license the intellectual property in that index to that fund manager. Interesting. Which means they get all the, the data about that index, so the various weightings of the, the stocks – um, uh, you know, the constituent data, all that sort of stuff. So we provide that to them and they're effectively replicating the index and then buying or getting a, a market maker to buy all the stocks in those proportions to create units for an ETF. So they're the product issuer. We're just the index provider. And the way wow. we make money is for every dollar that's invested in a product that tracks one of our indices, we clip the ticket. Wow. Yeah. So so we don't we actually don't have an AFSL in Australia because we don't issue product. Our, our product is the index. Right. Yeah. So how do you work with financial planners? So my job with financial planners is all around education. Interesting. So um, we, we run a couple of events a year, um, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. So in March, we do um, what we call an ETF masterclass. We run that in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah. And we get around 200 advisors to each of those events. And again, it's all about education, educating them about how can ETFs, the use of ETFs and, and passive solutions revolutionise your practice? Yeah. Um, and we've seen examples where um, firms in, in Australia have taken on ETFs and used SMAs and MDAs and all that sort of thing to run these portfolios. And it's just taken so much cost out of their business, so much admin out of their business that they can then focus on their client relationship. But ETFs can be a catalyst for that. Right. So, so, you, so you're. So, as I said before, you know, they're, they're focusing on the asset allocation piece, and then yeah. rather than then trying to go and select a fund and all that, go Aussie Equities. We're just going to do the ASX two hundred. There's an ETF on that. We'll use that for our exposure. Interesting. So, so you you're basically yeah, and 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 ah, this is kind of interesting because I've absolutely seen a trend in financial advice which is spend less time on the investments and more time on, on everything client else. Client relationship, right? yeah. yeah. client relationship. And also, um, it's interesting to speak to advisors what they're doing when they're not doing uh, investment management. And, um, and what we're seeing is they're outsourcing that investment management bit. They don't want to be investment managers. Yeah. They want to manage the relationship yeah. with their clients. Yeah, yeah. It, and and I guess that that's been a and it's interesting to speak to you because I guess your and, and your company has been a big part of, of that trend, and, and you uh, see that even more so in the US. Like it's it's really yeah absolutely. And so what 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 are what are advisors doing in the US? Well, I think just that whole idea of moving away from being an investment manager to being a relationship manager with their clients and also just an asset allocator, if you like, that's just taken off to a much greater extent. And I'll give you one example. There's a, there's a firm in, in Salt Lake City that our that S&P Dow Jones Indices has worked with. And let me just back up a bit. There's this kind of practice that's starting to emerge in the US or, or has emerged where there's these um, RIA firms, so registered investment advisors, who put themselves out there as ETF strategists. And what they're doing is putting together model portfolios or um, portfolios which use ETFs to express that, um, you know, theory or whatever they want to do. And these guys in Salt Lake City, they've kind of taken this model where they do a rotation strategy on the S&P 500 between a, a low volatility and a high beta version of the S&P 500. So you've heard of smart beta. Yes. So these are factor, um, factor um, 
ETFs or factor indices. And basically they have an algorithm which sends them signals and when those signals kind of come through, they go, we're going to swap out of the low vol into the high beta or back and forth and they kind of shift their money. So they were using two ETFs to actually do that and, and our guys came along and said, how do you actually measure your performance on that? We could we could take this and we could create a custom index for you. And so we, custom indexing is a big part of our business as well and a growing part of our business. So they can these guys could then say, this is our strategy. We have an independent index calculator who's looking at this strategy and monitoring your performance. So they owned the, the custom index. We were just the index calculator because it's their IP. They went to the next step where they licensed that index, which was tracking a strategy they had using ETFs they license that index to create another ETF on that. So, so they turned into fund managers. They turned well. They didn't issue it themselves. Who? Because oh, they, okay. they, they were the they owned that index. We calculated it, but they licensed it to an ETF issuer. So Whoa. it kind of went full circle. Whoa! And so <laughs> so now their ETF, which you calculate, which is their IP, is being sold by a product provider. So instead of using those two ETFs to trade in and out, they just use their own ETF now because it follows the strategy. Man, yeah, that's some complex shit right there. <laughs> so and this whole, um, we haven't seen the emergence of ETF strategists, but that's why I take advisors to the US, come and see into the crystal ball and see what's kind of over the hill, over the horizon and think about, you know, how this might apply in your business. So, you know, I've had advisors who's come on, who've come on the study tour and they have model portfolios of ETFs and we're like, how do you measure your performance? And they're like, what do you mean? How do we measure performance? We're doing really well but in comparison to what? What about we talk about getting a custom index which measures that performance? So you can go to your clients and say, this is how we've performed, and we can verify that by S&P Dow Jones indices is calculating this benchmark for us, and, and we can compare our performance against that. So can advisors in Australia create their own ETF? If they had a custom index which they owned, for sure. Okay, go, walk me through this process. How would that happen? So, you know, there's a firm I'm thinking of up in Brisbane. I won't, I won't name them. Um, they have model portfolios of exchange-traded funds. They might sure. have four or five model portfolios. Yep. And we've said to them, so how, how are they performing those model portfolios? What is your benchmark? And sometimes <laughs> they just look at you, what do you mean? What is my yeah, benchmark? Yeah, 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 They're yeah. doing really, really well. Well, compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> and so we say, you know, we could work with you and take what you're doing and create an index based on your IP, because it's your IP, those model portfolios, we can create an index, we'll calculate it for you. Um, if we have the data, we can use the data. If we don't have the data, we'll try and source the data to actually create that index. And then they own the intellectual property in that index. We're calculating it for them. And then they might think, well, I have the IP in this index. What about if I license that index to a fund manager to create an ETF around that? How does someone, how does someone license IP <clears throat> to a fund manager? It's like we do. So you go to a fund manager and you go, I've got this intellectual property in an index. This is how my portfolios running against this have been working. Are you interested in potentially doing a, an ETF around that? In licensing it from me? Yeah, in licensing it from me. Get out of town. <laughs> so we, that haven't, is we haven't seen that in Australia. super cool. But we've seen that in the US. Okay. Theoretically, right? Theoretically, how, you know, like... Who, who, let, let's, let, I'd love for an advisor to do this, right? So, so let's walk down theoretically how it would happen. So, because uh, a lot of advisors are, are sort of, you know, frustrated fund managers. And so they've got this IP that they've built up over a bunch of time. And then they say, Stuart, this is my IP. I want you to calculate it for me. So what we want to be able to do is take their IP and it's mm. got to be able to be 
um, turned into a methodology. Correct. So we need to be able to write that methodology. We need to be able to code that methodology into our systems. Yes. So that we can yep, do, makes the, sense. do the rebalances makes sense. and stuff like and that. And how, so, how, much, how much is your company going to charge him to do that? It depends. Like it depends how much back history they want, how many back testing. Let's, so let's it's, spitball, uh, <laughs> spitball, spitball for me. The, like it could be anything. Like the, Are we talking 10,000, 100,000, a million? It's certainly not 100,000 or a million. It's around the 10,000. Okay. Mark. Okay. So it's around that part. Okay. Now they've got this, it's an asset now, right? It's this, Correct. It's intellectual IP asset. Now, and so they would charge the fund manager as well. So for every dollar that goes into an ETF that they have licensed their license, index to, yep. they would be clipping the ticket as well. Okay. So they've got this, they've got this IP that obviously you guys aren't allowed to share with anyone, right? You they own it. The yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, you so guys, even though you know everything about it, where, where does the index calculate? Correct. So, so like I gave you an example yesterday, there's a, a custom index, which I have with one of my asset owner clients and they want to put it onto a particular portfolio management system. Even though we calculate it, I had to get a letter from them on their letterhead saying we could release it to this portfolio. Interesting. Because it's not our IP. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the advisor goes to you, pays around 10 grand or, you know, ballpark figure, and then they've got this IP, right? Okay, do they then like knock on the door of beta shares or what's the next step? They could or they could come to us and can you do some introductions from it to us with some of your right. ETF issuers? So we've, we've done that as well. So Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of different ways. Interesting. The, um, but the good part is, so then they're talking to their clients, right? And they're saying, uh, this is my... Well, you go, this, is my, this is my portfolio. This, this is your is, portfolio. Here's the here's the benchmark calculated independently. Yeah, and and and, and, and what would be the benchmark then? Well, whatever the strategy is. So, sure, you know, sure, for sure, the, sure. For the, for the model portfolio. And then, but there's a certain. So there's different ways we can do um, custom indices as well. So we we do something called a slice and dice, right. which is you take an S and P S and P index which currently exists. Yes. And you may just kind of exclude something. So, right. so, you know, you might take the S&P ASX 300, for example, and exclude the four Aussie banks. That would be a slice and dice. Yes. Um, but then if a fund man or an asset owner or, or an advisor came to us and they wanted an index, which was just the four Aussie banks, yes. that's their IP because they've told us what they want sure. that index to be. So they then own the IP. In the first instance, we own the IP. Yes. Now, if it's something simple like that, right? Yeah. So obviously no fund manager is going to pay for no, intellect. No, no. Right, 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 right. But so, so I'm just still going through the function of this in my head. So in this case, uh, the advisor has got something stand, you know, something pretty well, good. Well, these guys, you know, the, the um, low vol, high beta. Yes. So whatever algorithm they've developed to send the signal to know when to change out of one to the other, mm. there's obviously value in that mm. because when you look at the performance of that strategy, it's outperformed the S&P 500. Fantastic. So, so, so there's value there. So they've got, they've got this IP, you know, the, yep. Uh, they eventually get into boardrooms and they're discussing with product issuers, right? Probably doesn't start with boardrooms, but you know. <laughs> it starts with emails. It could start with an email, and then it might just be a random meeting, and then sure, sure, sure. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so it so, might eventually get to boardroom level, but you, you would hope. But right, <laughs> I don't think that's our first port of call. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. So, so the the advisor. Now, let's let's say for a second that this gets issued, but it's just for the financial planner's office, right? So it's a private the index. Yes, this, this particular. So you wouldn't be talking to the fund manager. You're only talking to the fund manager when you want to launch a product. Public. An ETF. Yeah, when it's just the index, yes. that's just between us and the financial advisor. Yeah, absolutely. But let, let's say let's say an advisor wants to create an ETF mm -hmm. just for, you know, let's say they've got a decent-sized company 
and that they've been manually doing these SMAs or whatever for a long time. It wouldn't make sense for a fund manager just to do it like a private label. ETF. Even if it was 100 mil? Yeah, you'd be lucky to get 100 mil as seed capital in Australia. Well, if it was your client base <clears throat> as an advisor. Well, for example, these guys in the US, I think when they, they, they moved all the money out of the two ETFs that they were rotating between into their new ETF. Yes. And I think they... The seed capital was something like forty million. So day right. one they moved forty million across. Right, right, right. So, so let let's say let's say for whatever reason so everyone forty million in Australia. That's that's big for an that's, ETF here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, fair enough. So except the you know the the biggies like the the, the huge ones yeah. totally. So in the event that uh, the advisors the IP is so good that they they they're now about to issue a product with with a product issuer. Um, and then that goes into the stable of the, the product issuer mm-hmm. and that just then gets sold. What's listed on the, in the Australian context. Yeah. Be, that's know, huge. Listed on the ASX. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. That is, what a crazy, crazy <laughs> world we live in where that can happen. So the strategy becomes an ETF. Wow. That is super cool, so but I'd no one's done it yet I'd in love Australia. To see it you know, that's why I take advisors. I look at the future, um, and, yeah. and that's why you know to loop back to where we started. The the study tour I take to the US. Mm. Um, so we have the fun, you know, the, the the ball game or the football game. We go onto the mm. trading mm. floor. Guns are firing, <laughs> and then we then there's like there's a serious part to it as well. So um, one thing we try to do is we want to get some cross-fertilization happening between American advisors and Aussie advisors. And this year we had Same. So Canadian advisors as well. So my colleague awesome. who does my job in Canada, um, he, he brought down a bunch of Canadian advisors as well. So it's awesome. kind of getting them all talking together, talking about what's happening in different markets. Yeah. Um, but then the education component is is obviously at the, the Morningstar conferences I talked about. But then at head office in New York, uh, we arrange meetings. So I think there was there was I had six Aussie advisors and there might have been another six Canadians. So there was twelve of them, and we have one hour meetings with the product managers. So you talk to the product manager of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, wow. the product manager of the S and P five hundred. So these yeah. guys are the ones who are running the P and Ls on those products. Mm. Um, you talk to to people in a team we call Index Investment Strategy, and and they're talking about you know they talk about all this passive active, mm. um, those kind of debates, and they mm. kind of get into that. So these guys eyeball these product managers and these subject matter experts and can just bombard them with questions for the hour. So that's part of the value proposition we bring to our partners, which are the fund managers. We can say, we can take your clients, financial advisors, yes. to the US yes. and the advisors pay all their own costs. Yes. Um, you know, we do a bit of hospitality when we're there or within, you know, FOFA. Um, type, type <laughs> Less things. than $200. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. And it's but, on their register. Yeah, it better yeah, it's, be. It's on it. They put. It, I hope they put it on their register. We put it on our register. Good. Good. Um, but that that's kind of a value add that we can can do. So you know, how, how else could you go and talk? You know, even even the product manager for the ASX two hundred is based in New York. So you can you can talk to him. Man. So that's super cool. Yeah. What what were you doing before you you started here? <sighs> so <laughs> my um my background was in um, retail financial services. Right. So I worked for I've had a bit of a, a few moves. So um, first I worked for MLC yep. for a couple of years, then I was at ING for a couple of years, then I was at AMP for five years. Doing um so various different roles. Initially I came into um, AMP as their head of e-commerce, e-business. Yeah, right. So I ran all their web kind of stuff. Cool. Um, and then my final role there, which is kind of interesting given um, Royal Commission and things yeah, in recent yeah, days, yeah. I was um, the head of AMP Direct, so running their direct business. Interesting. Um, someone's just shut down their direct business, I read. Um, Tal. Tal. Yeah. 
Shut down direct. So I think they've modified their business model where they're not doing outbound. Is, is, the, yeah. is what they're saying. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. The inbound is, is kind of a different kettle of fish, but it was the outbound. Yeah. And, and at AMP, we weren't doing that. It was, there was we didn't have specific direct products yes. um, or anything like that. But yes. I, uh, I can't believe it. <clears throat> and I'm being facetious here, but I can't believe it that, that calling people and offering them personalized general <laughs> advice seems to be skirting the issue. <laughs> I think the um, the classic comment someone from Clearview said, it's almost impossible to have a compliant and viable outbound direct business. Yeah, of course. Of course, you know. But anyway, uh, so yeah, like I've... Um, yeah, and, and then um, saw this job and thought, this is interesting. I, I know financial advice. So in my roles, I work with financial advisors as well. So it was not just direct products. I mean, in other roles, I'd had, you know, product um, roles to, uh, in terms of, you know, platform sales to, to financial advisors, yes. but also corporate super as well. Well, let's talk about that education piece for a little while. <clears throat> so what do you find um, when it comes to financial planners that they need to learn or upskill the most in uh, for, for their day-to-day business? So if, if they want to be talking indexing and passive to their clients, um, it's really, from my perspective, it's really important that they understand um, the Spiva stuff we've talked about. So yeah. you know, what, yeah, really cool. what is the, the, how do these products compare to mm. active managers? Yep. I think persistence, that one I talked about as well, yep. is really yep. important. And then the other thing I think they need to understand is just how indices work. How, how do we work in developing indices, maintaining those indices? How often do they rebalance? So they want to be able to explain to their client when they're talking about the S&P ASX 200, for example, well, it rebalances every quarter. This is how S&P does the rebalance. Um, these are the things they take into consideration. These are, and, and this is what kind of gets spat out at the end. So I think it's important for them to understand what is inside the ETF. And we often talk about you know, the, the index inside an ETF is kind of like the Intel inside. So it's the, the chip, if you like, which is actually running the ETF. Yeah, right. And <clears throat> do, do, you, do you teach um, a bit about asset allocation? Um, we'll talk about ways you can address asset allocation by using ETFs. So sure. um, we won't tell them how to do their job in terms of, you know, this is how you should do an asset allocation. I think, I think, I think this is probably going to be a positive that comes out of the Royal Commission as well, that Aussie investors have typically been very heavily weighted to Aussie equities, so there's a strong home country bias. Yeah. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Franking credits has kind of been a, a mm. thing that's driven that, yep, but, yep. but it's what you know. Yes. But when you look at it, the Australian stock market in comparison to the global market, it's like 1%. Yeah. You might have 30% of your allocation in 1% of the market. So yeah. um, it was really interesting. I was um, the SMSF Association, who we do a lot of work with, um, partnered with a... a, a um, what was it, a, a conference, it wasn't really a conference, an exhibition company, and they ran this SMSF um, expo down in Melbourne for three days um, last April. So we had a stand at the, at the expo, so I was there for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it was kind of really interesting. Friday was all the retirees came in. Um, Saturday, it was kind of financial advisors, and this wasn't because it was a special day for them, and the third day with mums and dads with their kids because the kids weren't playing sport on Sunday. But on the Friday, I was talking to this lady and she came in. She was, you know, a doyen of Melbourne. You know, she lived in Turak or South Yarra and just chatting away. And we, somehow we got onto asset allocation and franking credits. And she goes, oh, franking credits are mugs game. All my money's in the US. And, and so we just kind of had that conversation. So she understood that, you know, if she put 30% or whatever of her asset allocation into Aussie equities, she was only really exposing herself to 1% of the global market. And she said, you know, I can make a lot more money okay. by having invested in the US. So she'd kind of... She'd How old back. was she? Oh, she'd be in her 80s. 
Okay. But she was like, you know, she, she would have known every single dollar down to the last cent in her oh, purse. Okay. It just, it seems weird because in pension phase, <clears throat> you receive the franking credits back at as... The a, you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But how is that not a good thing? I think it's a good thing and she was happy to get it. Yeah. But she still thinks she can make more money offshore. Just With in terms capital, of capital growth. growth. Yeah. It's 80 year old baller. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And she's just, she's just, I don't know whether she was widowed or not. Or she just ran the, the SMSF. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and, and that's one of the joys of my job. I get to meet with people like this. Like it's <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah. incredible the range of people. So, <laughs> so we had a had a conversation for twenty or thirty minutes. So, it was was great. Man, that is cool. Um, there, there, there's dynamic asset allocation, right? What, what's what's your views? What's your views on? So, you know, when an advisor moves up from fund management selection, and they say, okay, I'm willing to uh, move to this uh, passive world, and and then they start maybe getting their fingers involved in this, uh, in, in dynamic asset allocation. Um, are you seeing that as a trend anywhere? Well, that's what the ETF strategists are doing in, in yeah. the US. So they're running these model portfolios, which, um, you know, they may have a strategic element to them, but they're definitely dynamic in yeah. their asset allocation. And um, when we were in the US last year, we went to this, um, it was like a three quarter of a day event, day and a half event before the Morningstar ETF conference, which doesn't exist anymore. But it was a quarter an ETF manager summit. And, and I just remember this person saying that all we're doing, again, ETF strategists, all we're doing is using, we're, we're, we have an active strategy, but we're using passive instruments to execute that active strategy. Yes. And I think that's a really good way to explain it. So, you know, even, you know, I think we talked about earlier, the ASX, there is turnover in the index and the ASX 200. Um, so there is activity in there if you like, mm. but it's rule-based activity. And similarly yes. with these ETF strategies, there's, there's changes between ETFs depending on how the strategy is running, but it's rule-based. And, and that's what, you know, it takes the emotion out of it if you like. From an advisor point of view, uh, if I go back to what I was talking about earlier with uh, um, ad advisors spending less and less time on, on the investment piece. And, and uh, that's kind of what this podcast has been about over the years is, is finding out well, what are you doing besides uh, the funds management. Um, by, by getting involved with dynamic asset allocation, um, do you feel like that is a strong area where an advisor can add value and, and thereby charge value? Is, is, is that something that that you would agree to? If that's what the advisor wants to do, sure. Sure. Um, if they think they can bring the skills to the table to do that, we would still say that, you know, think about how you would express that dynamic asset allocation and ETFs might be a way that you express that. So, yes. you know, if, you, if you're shifting between, you know, 30% Aussie equities to 10%, yeah. rather than trying to pick different fund managers, you do that or, you know, you're just drawing down amounts, think about an ETF. Um, and, and, you know, why we love ETFs um, or think ETFs are a good vehicle for, for clients and advisors is, you know, they're cheap compared to an active manager. Mm -hmm. They're transparent. So mm -hmm. if you buy an ETF which tracks the S&P ASX 200, you know exactly what's in that ETF, what the holdings are, um, what 200 stocks are in there. Whereas if you were an active fund manager, you've got a large cap 
um, Aussie equity fund, you're never quite sure what's in there. And you may find out six or 12 months after that, but you can't kind of find out now because they're running the fund. That's their yeah, IP. Yes. Um, and the other thing is, is liquidity. So, you know, you can get in and out of an ETF like you can a share. You just go online and you trade it like a share. Yeah. Um, whereas a managed fund, you've got to kind of put in an order and T plus two, T plus three days to get it back and redeem units and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, we think those three things make ETFs really compelling for, in, for investors and advisors. What's the biggest trend that you see in the US that has yet to <clears throat> kick off in Australia? I think we've started to see kind of the, the first green shoots of this in Australia, but you know, smart beta or factor-based ETFs are massive in the US. Yeah. Um, it's been a huge, huge growth area. Um, and, and not probably so much in the US, but I think there's talk of it in Australia and definitely in Europe um, the whole ESG, so environmental, social, carbon efficient indices, how does that translate into ETF? So I think that's got a long, well, it's only just started that sort of stuff. And we've just launched in the last week, these, um, global carbon efficient indices. So it's a, it's a carbon take on the, you know, S&P 500, 600, 400, et cetera. And are there any product issuers these, that these are- These indices have literally just been- And so launched. there's no one living up to it yet? Um, there's interest and, and mm. with one of these, there's been an allocation out of the um, government pension fund in Japan, which is 70% of pension assets in Japan. They've done an allocation to one of these and they're tracking one of these indices. Wow. Um, so something like 10, 10 or $12 billion. When, when the S&P decides to create a new indice, does that create a lot of interest in the market? We would maybe flip it around the other way. We would probably go, sometimes we will drive the market and other times yeah. we we'll respond to the market. So yeah, it just really okay. depends on, on what we're what we're and 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 I think I, I remember reading somewhere once that about two percent of uh, fund is invested in ethical at the moment, but it, the trend line has sort of it's come up from a half a percent a handful of years ago. So now yeah, there's certainly a lot of interest and talk and, and that sort and of thing. So, so as a result, you guys turn around and go, actually, this is now worth tracking. We'll create an index. Creating an yeah. index. And and now I might be well, testing you here because it sure. is brand new, <laughs> but <laughs> and because this has always been the counter argument to ethical. It's like, okay, it's great, but you, you have to suffer a return. What are you seeing as far as- So I literally did some training on these global oh, cool. um, carbon efficient indices yesterday and you don't take a performance hit. That's fantastic. So you're actually- can outperform yeah, the, the right. underlying. Wow. So which is which is kind of counterintuitive. Yes. So but I don't know when you think about it, why would a carbon intensive company necessarily <laughs> yeah, have good better point. return? So yeah. um yeah, interestingly that that's not not a concern. And and what, you know, GPIF in, in Japan are wanting to do, they're kind of wanting to create this global movement of, of, you know, big pension funds starting yeah. to put assets against these carbon efficient because they think that's the only way that, you know, we're going to get to the what, of was course. the, what was the Paris? It was 2%, um, two degree yeah. um, increase. Now, yeah, now we're yeah, talking yeah. one and a half degree. Yeah. So how do you, how do you drive that yep. cultural change? Correct. So, Which is so awesome because, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I believe that entrepreneurship and, and capitalism can actually be the source of a lot of uh, good in the world. And, uh, and it does not surprise me at all that while a Paris agreement might fail, and the reason it did fail is because uh, as far as I could tell, they, it, that, it wasn't a singular issue topic. There was 
sure it's it's this but also brrr, these are all these other requirements that and and to a certain extent i can understand why certain countries first and all that correct stuff, correct right. and and so why why rely on the governments because they're not going to get it done i love that some huge pension company is going you know what we've got a few billion dollars over here we're just going to back and so I take my hat off to, to companies like uh, S&P that are creating the indice, which is you know, a reflection of the movement of the times. And it's awesome to see, wow, what a great news story <laughs> that the finance industry is actually going to be a key part of leading um, you know, the charge into a healthier and cleaner world. And it's because it, it's such a weird concept to me. But when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like, of you know, course it, it does. It's not yes. obvious or intuitive, but once you think about it, it's, it's, uh, yeah. I, I just think because money's going to make it's correct, drive the correct, shift. and also if you don't have to take a hit, then it's like well, of course, because let's let's say that let's just take this absurd position that every single scientist in the world doesn't know what they're talking about. And uh, and we don't know whether carbon is making the world bad or good. And and, and okay, let's let's remove all that. Is it still good to live in a world that's healthy and clean? And clean. Yeah. Like if you just assume that is a good starting point, then I I I mean, who cares who's right and who's wrong? Let's just go with what's you know objectively. You, you can tell if there's plastic on the ground or yeah, not, right? And <laughs> like, and on the beach absolutely. And like the, these are really easy things to see. And so whatever is cleaning that up, and if we can get our huge pension funds that are, let's say, uh, investing in companies that don't produce you know, a bunch of stuff, that is real change. That's awesome. Really interesting. On, on, it's kind of slightly related. We just come back from a holiday with a family and we, we spent um, five nights on Lady Elliot Island, which is on the southern end of the Great Barrier Reef. So it's off Gladstone. Right. And it's an eco-tourism resort. It's an advanced eco-tourism resort, they, they call it. And um, so I had three of my four kids with me. And, um, you know, we were snorkeling with manta rays and turtles and all this so sort of stuff awesome. straight off the beach and coral and everything. Yeah. And, you know, so you do these tours, you know, you went on out a tour, there's a lagoon, you could walk through the coral reef and they're kind of pulling octopuses out of like crevices and <laughs> stuff like this, crazy stuff. But this guy, he, he was just so passionate about turtles as his thing, he just loves turtles. And you're saying, you know, even just the smallest things you can do at home, if everyone is doing those, the cumulative impact, and you just said, like, the government's yes. going to get to do it because the political politics don't work for them. Yes. But if individuals can just do these small little things, that has a massive cumulative um, impact. And I think the same with the finance industry. If people start doing this, others will kind of follow the wave. Absolutely, especially if there's billions of dollars behind it. That exactly. makes it makes me really happy. I'm really happy to hear that story. Um, mate, thank you so much for, for coming in. It's My a pleasure, pleasure to, it's to been, uh, interesting and helpful and yeah. it's been fun. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think, I think you, you've got a, a, not only a really experienced, but you've got a really cool insight on a bunch of things. So, um, mate, that, that was really cool. If someone wants to reach out, learn more, if there's advisors listening here, want to get educated on, on certain topics or like, how do they get in contact with you? They can email me. So should yep. I just say Please, my, yeah. Yep. So it's stuart.mcgrath. So it's S-T-U-A-R-T dot McGrath, M-A-G-R-A-T-H. So there's no C in my surname <laughs> um, at spglobal.com. Awesome. And you're on you, do you do social media at all? Um, I'm not yeah. a big, but you know, I'm, I'm, I, I fits and burst. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So, sure, yeah. but just just get my name spelt correctly. So. <laughs> but Stuart McGray, SPDJI, you'll uh, you'll pick us up. So, mate, awesome, and, and so thanks for coming in and sharing. Yeah, my pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.